talk to you this morning about that thought of what are you looking for in life. As the video portrayed so well, I think that most people in our world around us are looking for happiness, aren't they? And they're looking for the next, next thing that will make them happy, what will make them feel good about life and, and uh, getting through the day. All my papers up here. There was a popular magazine several years ago took a survey and said, what would it take to make you happy? They asked the question of 52,000 Americans, and this, these were their answers. What would it take to make you happy? Friends or social life? A job? Being in love? Recognition and success? Personal growth? Good financial situation? Having a house or a good apartment? Being attractive and beautiful. I guess that must have been the younger crowd. Living in a good city. Uh, my religion. Recreation and exercise. I didn't take that part of the survey. Being a parent. Marriage. Your, par- your partner's happiness. And the list went on with different things that, that, would make, that people said, this is what it would take to make me happy. And uh, the interesting thing about it is that most of this happiness were found through external situations instead of internal situations. Most of them were, you know, if I just had this particular thing, then I would be okay. And today we see that the, the popular idea of happiness in our culture is having the right circumstances. You know, when you ask somebody about uh, how, you know, what really makes you happy, they always talk about, well, whenever I get to a certain level in life, then I'll be happy. I remember when I was younger, it was, well, when I get through college, then I'll be happy. Well, I got through college, and then I had to go to work. You know, it was like, you know, that was no fun. I talked to a recent graduate of college. I said, how's it going? I wish I were still in college. (laughs) Work is not as fun as college, you know. Uh, At least I I had something to look forward to. Now I just have, you know, every day to look forward to. It's the same old thing. Um, And and we, we we look towards all these different events that will make us happy, you know. Uh. If I could just wait till I got married, you know, you're just all excited to get married. Then you get married and you realize, well, that was work too, you know. It was fun for a couple of weeks and then the hard work kicked in and I, you know, my wife's not, my wife's not in the building yet. I guess I could talk like that, right? You know? uh, probably harder work for her, you know, to be married to me. But, you know, it's like you, you got married and now that's hard. Now, now there's children. I can't wait till I have a baby. Then we have a baby and can't sleep at all. And it's like you just keep going through all these things, you know, you, you keep looking. Then you, you know, then, then there's a point you wait. I hear people talk about, you know, like a lot of people my age say, oh, man, when, I'm, when my kids are old enough to do certain things. You know, I'm waiting for my kids to be old enough to cut the grass. That, that, I'm pretty happy with that. Others are waiting for their kids to be old enough to pay their bills, you know. I mean the parents' bills, to come back and pay off their college tuition, all those things. And so we look at all these different things, you know, and they're all circumstantial. If, if I had this car, think about that. If I had this car, if I just go out and get this, I would be so happy until about the third payment, you know. And it's like, wow, this car needs, needs this and it needs that. And it's all this. And I guess I can talk a little negative on cars, pastors away. You know, his love for cars. So I, I can't go too hard on cars. But, you know, cars, uh, you know, and, and, and he'll even tell you that, man, they don't make you happy. None, none of these things that we look to, none of these circumstances make us happy. They're very temporal. 
Let's go over to this morning to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Psalms is the middle book in the Bible. Then you go one more to the right is Proverbs, and one more to the right from there is Ecclesiastes. Chapter 2. And Solomon is writing here, and he's talking about, about the realities of life. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. I said to myself, come, now, let's give pleasure a try. Let's look at the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. It is silly to be laughing all the time. I said, what, the, what good does it do to seek only pleasure? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. While still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I hope to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. I also tried to find meaning by building huge home, by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. I bought slaves, I bought servants, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned great herds and flocks, more than any of the kings who lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many, kinds, uh, many kings of, of promises. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women. I had everything a man could desire. Verse 9, so I became greater than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. And with it all, I remained clear-eyed so that I could evaluate all these things. Anything I wanted, I took. I did not restrain myself from any joy. I even found great pleasure in hard work and an additional reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless. It was like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Boy, as I read that, I'm, I look at that and I say, wow, it's not too exciting, is it? <laughs> this is all meaningless. You mean everything I've worked for, everything I've given my life to is meaningless? You mean to tell me that uh, all that work to build, build my house? Of course, I haven't built my house. I'm trying to repair an old one forever, you know? Uh, all that work I've put into my house, it's, it, it, it's not worth it. It is meaningless. Solomon looked in three areas. He looked, number one, at accumulation of things. He said that there is no real happiness in the accumulation of things. I'm reminded about accumulating things when I went down to my basement to begin to remodel it and make it a place for the kids to have a playroom. We have boxes everywhere. I've had several people come over and help me. And they, they ask me, when are you going to throw this stuff away? Okay? There are boxes on top. My wife's asking me when I'm going to throw half it away. I have this dream that I'm going to be a, an eBay millionaire one day. <laughs> and then I'm going to sell it all. I go to every garage sale. I buy everything for a dollar and, and expect to get millions out of it. I've been ruined somewhere along the line by one good sale on eBay. And so I've got all this stuff down there, and, and I'm collecting this stuff. And I'm thinking that if I, as I accumulate things, you know, I go over and there's another corner, and the boxes say Christmas, 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 Christmas. It's like Christmas, the whole wall. And I'm like, Rhonda, where, do we really need all this stuff? You know? Couldn't, wouldn't you be happy if 
you know, we could just buy new stuff every year. I don't know. I just, why do we have to accumulate all these things? She says, we couldn't afford to buy that all new all year. That took me all my life to save that, you know. I'm like, yeah, I think I could throw this away, this away. And, you know, but I don't let her go through my things down there because my things are definitely worth keeping, right? The accumulation of things as we, as we you know, we live in a society that, that is so oriented to accumulate uh, physical things. Uh, verse 7 and 8 in Ecclesiastes 2. Verse 7 and 8. He says, I bought, I bought uh, servants, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned great herds and flocks, more than any other king who lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and, uh, and I had everything a man could desire. I had it all. I had everything. And so accumulation of things doesn't make us happy. What else did he look and find that doesn't make him happy? The experiencing of pleasures. Experiencing of pleasure. And that is in verse 3. If you look in verse 3. After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. While still seeking wisdom, I clutched to foolishness. In this way, I hope to experience the only happiness most people will find during their brief life in this world. Verse 10. Look down at verse 10. Anything I wanted I took. I didn't restrain myself from any joy. I even found great pleasure in hard work and additional reward for all my labors. The experiencing of pleasures, they don't bring us happiness. Um, you know, pleasures are short-lived, aren't they? We look forward this summer to going to Hilton Head. And you've got to remember, from, from where I live, going to Hilton Head was like, Almost going to heaven, you know. It was, it was wonderful. And we had talked about it for months. I have a sister-in-law who moved down to Hilton Head, and I pray she stays there a very long time. We went down. We spent uh, a week in, in her house. Our family, we moved in. We took over. We drove her crazy. And uh, I'm, I'm hope, I think she's hoping we never come back. But um, we had the greatest time of our life. But we looked forward to Hilton Head. My kids, they talked about Hilton Head. We're going to Hilton Head. Hilton Head. They didn't know what Hilton Head was. That's all they talked about. We're going to Hilton Head. I knew it was a beach. I've heard about it. The only beach I'd been to was foreign beaches on missions trips with youth groups. And when you take a youth group to the beach, you're really not going to the beach, you know. You're counting heads constantly, making sure everybody's still alive, making sure they haven't wandered off with the locals. All kind of fun things can happen when you go on a youth group trip. And so you're really not enjoying yourself. So I went down. I said, I can't wait to go to Hilton Head. I mean, it was like we left town. Nobody knew we were even alive anymore. We were gone. We got down to Hilton Head. We had the greatest time. And we're out there swimming in the water. You know, of course, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the water. I kind of like to hang out under the umbrella, you know. Give me a nice tea and let me under the umbrella, and that's my idea. Actually, my idea of vacation is in the air-conditioned condo. For, for, forget the beach, you know. But I'm out there, and we're all swimming. I'm sitting under the, beach, uh, under the umbrella. I'm saying, okay, Lord, another two hours. I'll get out of the sun. And, uh, and I'll, I, look, I look, and I see my youngest daughter, Kara. She starts screaming in the water. And she comes running out. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? You probably stepped on a little rock or something. Something bit me. You know, she's thinking of a shark. And uh, here it was a jellyfish got her. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a jellyfish, you know. And then, uh, you know, we take her to the lifeguard. They spray her down with something. And I said, oh, well, we'll be okay. Let's keep having fun. We're here, you know. I'm, I'm like, you know, 
like the famous TV, the famous movie where the guy went on vacation, you know, he had the station wagon, you know, that's us, you know, we're, we're sitting out there, we're going on vacation, and we, we're out there, and I'm sitting there, and then I'm like, oh, she'll be okay, so we buried her in the stand over here, and she's having fun, and then all of a sudden, I see my wife come running out of the water, ah, she comes screaming out of the water, I'm like, oh, you people, come on, it's just the jellyfish, okay, they're this big, how much can it possibly hurt? So the next day I decide to go in to show my, my children that it's okay, that we're going to have a good time in this water, and we're not going to let a few jellyfish ruin our vacation. And I'm in the water about 10 minutes. Ah! I come running out of the water. I, uh, I, I got a pretty good bite of a jellyfish. He, he, he really liked, you know, I got some meat to hang on to. And, uh, and he came after me. And then right after me comes my wife. She come out. And it's like, everybody come out of the water, and our vacation in the water was done. It's like, you know, we had anticipated this wonderful thing to experience this great joy and pleasure, and it was gone. I mean, it was over. Now we had to find other fun things to entertain ourselves on Hilton Head Island, you know? And it's like, they don't have streetlights down there. It's dark. Uh, you know, I, I'm a city person. It's like, what do we do now, you know? Okay, I guess we have to talk to each other, you know, and now we're going to have fun. And, uh, and so, so we looked at this great idea of a vacation, and then the vacation, and you know what? Coming home, it's like, you mean to tell me I look forward to that for how many months? I mean, I look forward to going to there. It was like at the end of my life vacation. And I get there, and it's over, and it's like, you've got to be kidding me. There's got to be more than life, and this is a tremendous letdown. It's almost like Christmas time. You know, you write all your, your gifts down. You give all these gifts. And then about two days after Christmas, the kids aren't playing with the toys anymore. You know? My, uh, my, my daughters, last year we went out. We got them a Wii, a Nintendo Wii. I mean, you know, it was like a big thing. We had to find it. We had to look all over the place to find a Nintendo Wii. Stood in line with a few members of the church, and we finally got one. And uh, I should have been working, but I snuck out, you know, and I found it in the middle of the day. And I'm down there at Walmart. I get this thing. I go home. My kids play with it. And, and now it's, it collects dust pretty good, you know. It's like you went from this great, great thing that we're going to get this, and then boom. The accumulation of things, experiencing pleasures, achieving success is the third area. Achieving success, verses 4 through 6 and 9 through 11. They also talk about his success. In verse 11, he says, But as I looked at everything I worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless. It was like chasing the wind. There was really nothing worthwhile anywhere. Wow. As we look and we live in our world, you look around and define happiness. The people in our world, they're searching. Listen, the weekend is one long trip of a search for happiness. I cannot... I cannot get over it. More and more our culture is going to, okay, it's Friday night, work is done. Let's see what I can do to find happiness this weekend. What can I do to have total enjoyment? Because I've got to go back to work Monday. So from 6 o'clock Friday night all the way through till, till Sunday evening, what can I do to experience this, to, to, to deal with this thing? And even success, all these things are not, are not solving their problem of happiness. Jesus taught something different about happiness. Jesus taught that happiness was having the right attitude. He didn't teach something about having happiness from the external. His was something from internal. So if you'll turn over to Matthew chapter 5 with me, if you will. Matthew chapter 5. And we'll see 
we're just going to read a few verses from, from the Beatitudes. And Jesus here, he gives this great message and he says, and we'll pick up in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will also, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way you were persecuted by the prophets uh, who, you were persecuted like the prophets who were before you. And so today uh, we see that Jesus' idea, blessed, you can, you can take that word and put in there happy. Happy are those. Okay? But it's not just happiness like we think of this external happiness. It's happiness coming from inside. This is what a happy person is. These are the characteristics of people who are happy in God. All right? So it is totally different. Jesus had a different... His values, he valued different things than what the world valued. The world valued... Uh, just, just real quick, in 5.3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For they will become, uh, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What is the attitude of the world, the counter value of the world? How about self-confidence? I'm competent. I'm self-reliant. Two different thoughts. Two different thoughts. Uh, Matthew 4, blessed are those who mourn. What does the world teach us? The world teaches us to be pleasure seekers. The world teaches us to be, oh, that beautiful person. It, there's no pain. Uh, Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek. What does the world teach us? Proud, powerful. Oh, people love power, don't they? Power, importance. I want to be important. That is different than what God says is happy. God says that these other things are happy. It seems so opposite because we're living in a world that is racing all these things at us. Our culture is racing all these things in our eyes and saying, you are not important unless you perform well. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say that I'll love you based on your performance. You can fail and be loved by God. Isn't that powerful? As a matter of fact, that's the kind of people that God really uses. He uses the people that, that can't do it. The people that fail more, because his strength is able to be used there. Matthew 5, 7, merciful. Blessed are those who are merciful. What's our culture say? Be able to take care of yourself. Pure in heart. What does our culture say? To be sophisticated. Uh, Peacemakers. What does our culture say? Be aggressive. Be competitive. And, and, And the list goes on. But I want us to focus in on just a little bit here this morning of the first step to becoming truly happy is to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit. Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Think with me, if you will, about what that means to be poor in spirit. We often think of being poor in spirit as lowly, 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 I'm no good. Well, you know what? That's not it because God... 
God purchased you with a price, you are of extreme value to God. It's not that you are no good, that you're, that you're nothing. But it is an attitude before God. Now, think with me, if you will, about what those people understood when Jesus said poor. He threw out the word, blessed are the poor in spirit. What did they understand of a poor person? Well, they had items like you and I think. We think of people who are poor. But if you will go with me all the way to the extreme of poor, as the people understood in that day, when there was a beggar laying at the gates. When blind Bartimaeus was laying there, and he's shaking a can, and he's saying, alms for the poor. Alms for the poor. Help me. He isn't going to live unless somebody provides for him. The guy couldn't, couldn't do anything, couldn't work, so he had to lay there at the gates. And we see quite often in the New Testament this example of someone begging at the gate. And so this morning I'd like to liken this morning poor in spirit the same way that we are begging before God. We're coming before God and we're saying, God, I can't make it without you. Alms for the poor spiritually. Right here, God. I need you. I need you. I can't live without you. Unless you make this happen, I can't, I can't do this. I can't spiritually do this thing, Lord. It's the idea of being a beggar before the Lord. And we are poor in spirit. We are humble before an almighty God. And if you've never come to that point in your life where you have taken that initial step of humility, where you come before God and say, God, I'm a sinner. You died on the cross for me. I accept you as my Savior, Lord. I'm humbling myself before you. That is the very first act of humility for a relationship with God. You come to God you say, Lord, I accept you. You died on the cross. My good works, they mean nothing. Only you. You died. You see what I did? I humbled myself before God. I became poor in spirit. That was when you first came to Christ. How about now? You've come to the Lord and maybe you've been walking in the Word, walking in the light for several years. Are you poor in spirit now? Boy, it's so easy to spiritually think that we've got this thing under control. So easily spiritually to think I can handle life. And then I go back into work and, yes, I received Christ at a point in time over there, but here I am ten years later in my life and when I go to work and there's people I don't like there, I let them know I don't like them. Now, it's hard for me to do in the office up here, right, guys? Okay? So I'm speaking hypothetically. Okay? You go, uh, you, you received the Lord long ago, but now somebody, somebody has crossed your path. Poor in spirit. What does that mean now? I come before the Lord. God, I do not particularly care for the person who sits next to me at work. They drive me insane. So I humble myself, and I sit there, and I prefer somebody over myself. I'm humble in spirit. Could you do the job better than that person? Probably. But humility says you take a second seat. And you become poor in spirit, and you bite your tongue, and you go to the Lord in prayer, and you say, oh, God, help me. That is what we're talking about, poor in spirit, to, to grow in your life. Humility. How can humility increase my happiness? Well, first of all, humility reduces stress. Humility reduces stress. When I'm humble, I don't have to have all the answers. 
I realize that the world does not depend on me, and now I can resign as general manager of the universe. Um, when I'm humble, I realize that I don't have to solve problems in this world. When I'm humble, I don't have to fake it. I don't have to pretend that I'm perfect because God doesn't demand me to be perfect. He has already purchased me with the price of his son. I don't have to be perfect in order to be happy. I am forgiven. And so in order to get into heaven, he requires perfection. The blood of Christ has covered me. And so now I fail, I make mistakes. God says, get up, Ben. Get up. Do not lay there. Do not lay there because of your failure. You see, when I'm laying in my failure, that's my pride. I'm taking it on. And Jim and I and a couple of others around the staff, we're always challenging ourselves to this. Because so many times we'll make a statement. And I love when Jim says to me, ah, now, you don't say that again. That's your pride. I'm like, Jim, I didn't think I was a prideful person. Don't say that again. That's your pride coming out. Okay? And that's what we need. We need to sharp, iron sharpens iron around here. And so, man, we say, say something like, well, that was my fault. And, you know, I, I would never think, well, that was my fault. It's pride. And uh, I've come to understand, well, yeah, that is pride. Because now I've said that I can do the work better than God. And no, God doesn't need me to do his work. He's looking for somebody humble. Uh, it reduces stress um, when I'm humble. Sometimes we take ourselves a little too seriously, don't we? It's like we get so bent out of shape over this thing. I've got to become humble. And it's okay if other people seemingly win an argument in front of you, you know? It's okay if, if, if somebody else is, uh, has taken the day. I stand back and humble. It reduces stress. Number two, humility improves my relationships. Humility improves my relationships. Uh, not too many people like to be around uh, somebody who knows it all, do you? You know? You ever get in a situation where somebody knows it all and they answer all the questions before you can even think about them, you know? It's like, so what do you think? Well, yeah, no, 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 no. They, they carry it on, you know? It's like nobody enjoys that. And that, that really ruins things in marriages, too, you know? One person is the know-it-all and the other one has to be the servant, right? Well, we're supposed to both be the servants. We're supposed to humbly serve each other. St. Francis, you've heard of the famous monk, St. Francis of Assisi. I read something about him. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi, the monk, ha uh, he had a method of attaining humility. In his memoirs, he said, at any time someone praised him, in order to stay humble, he had a fellow monk set, set him down and tell him all of his faults. And uh, he, you know, somebody said that he had, to, he had to ask a fellow monk because he was never married, you know. Uh, my wife keeps me humble, you know, and, and I keep her humble. And, uh, you know, as you start going along, and then your wife comes along and says, hey, straighten up. Ooh, what, what am I going to do about that? See, how do I respond to my wife? Am I poor in spirit with my wife? Or do I fight back? Well, I'm not going to answer that question publicly, you know. <laughs> do I have to win every war? Of course, I don't. I don't know how a husband can not think he's right all the time. I just, that's how God gifted us, right? We're always right. God has made us eternal right, right? But, but, and then I'll, the flip side is I don't know any wife that doesn't think she's right all the time, you know? There's two points of views in a marriage. And we work together. And unless there's some humility, it doesn't work. And so when I'm humble, it works. And there are times that, you know, I don't always win. 
Last night, I wanted to go see those fireworks. Anybody go down there and see those fireworks last night? Okay. A few happy souls out there, okay? I wanted to go see fireworks last night. My wife said, no, you've got to study because you have a sermon tomorrow. I said, I'll stay up all night. This is fireworks. She doesn't understand it. She's from, like, you know, in the woods. I'm a city guy. I'm seriously, she's from Washington in the woods. I'm from the city. And, like, we have a personal attachment to fireworks. It's like, if there's fireworks, we have got, you know, I, I didn't go. I humbled myself. I said, yes, ma'am. I humbled myself. I studied, and I was up here late, and I walked out on the porch at 10, 10.30 last night. I said, I'm wondering if I can hear them from here, you know. Sometimes you have to humble yourself, and that's what God wants us to do. Be poor in spirit. Number three, humility releases God's power in your life. James 4, 6, God gives strength to the humble, but he sets himself against the proud. You want to have God's strength in your life? Humble yourself. All the things that we're trying to do, success in our jobs, success in our work. You know what? You want to see God work in, in your job and all that? You want to see God's will envelop in your life? Bow back before Him and humble yourself before an Almighty God. You want to see God work in your marriage? Stand back. Humility. Let God release His power. You want to see God work in all these areas of your life? We've got to stand back and let Him work in our life through having a humble heart. I'd like to close with this thought this morning, the example of Moses. Moses was a powerful example. If you go over to Exodus chapter 33, you see that Moses... He was a great leader leading the nation of Israel. And he's leading them through the desert. He sets up a tent called the Tent of Meeting. And every day, Moses went into the Tent of Meeting, and God came down. The pillar of smoke came down and went into the tent, and God met with Moses. And when he did that, all the people of the nation of Israel came to the door of their tent, And they stood and watched, for they knew that he was meeting with God. And I started to think about this in in terms of humility. Moses was a very humble servant. He had a lot of things going on in his life, trying to lead a major, major country. But he stood before the people he went out, and the whole nation knew that he was going out to get leadership from God Almighty. And I asked myself this, do my kids... Do my kids stand in awe when dad goes and humbles himself before an almighty God and gets direction? We're men. We don't like to get directions. We don't like to read them, do we? We know it all. But do my children know that daddy went before almighty God for direction what to do next? Does my wife know? Is there honor at the humility of her husband going before an almighty God. Oh, yes, her husband's imperfect and is wrong and does this and that, but does the bottom line, does she see a man who will go before almighty God and say, Oh, God, how about you and your family? Are your attitudes a carbon copy of the world's? As I put on the screen, they're selfish, pride, lust for power, Or do they reflect the humility of a self-sacrificing Jesus? Let's bow in prayer.
With your heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, happiness is not found in external things. It's found in a humble heart before an almighty God. And I wish I could tell you if you had a bigger house that you'd be happy, but that's not true. I wish I could tell you if you had a smaller house that you'd be happy, that, but that's not true. None of the external things will make you happy. But when we come before the Lord, He says He gives grace to the humble. He gives strength to the humble. But He opposes the proud. Your friends, your family, they need you to carry this message to them. They need you to show them why they don't have happiness. They're chasing the wind. God has changed your life. He has transformed your life. Let's carry that message out. We're going to have an invitation in just a little bit here. And I invite you to come and kneel at the altar and just meet before God Almighty. Let's show our children, let's show our family, our wives, that that we go before the Lord God Almighty. And we seek His wisdom, we seek His strength. And the pillar of smoke, the God of the universe is coming to speak with us. Because mommy and daddy, we're not strong enough to do this on our own. We are poor in spirit and God Almighty is our guide. Your neighbors need to know that. They need to see a difference in your life because you've gone to the tent of meeting. You've humbled yourself before an almighty God. God's not looking for your abilities. He's looking for your availability. Will you just be available to Him today? Father God, we come before You now and we ask Your guidance on this service as we close. Father, move mightily in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to continue to walk in the spirit of truth. Help us to have a spirit that is poor in spirit, to be beggars at the hand of God. Lord, I thank You for how Your Word speaks to us. Thank you that you have shown us the realities of life in Ecclesiastes and over in Matthew where you showed us uh, the depth of how to really find peace and joy. Comfort in life is through a relationship with God. While the circumstances may rage around us, while life is filled with ups and downs, we have the joy of the Lord. And it's so opposite of what the world says. God, I pray that you move mightily in this place. May your word speak for itself. For it's in your name we pray.